Welcome to the final episode in a three-part series on the murder of Pamela Warner. Hey you, yes, you in the back there, I saw you trying to start listening with this episode. Nope, ain't gonna happen. Go back two episodes and start there. What are you thinking? For the rest of you, this is your friendly reminder that this is a true crime podcast and all the unpleasant details that often come with true crime are likely to be spoken about here. Listener, beware. This is your opportunity to bow out. You still here? Okay then. This is It's All Relative, the podcast which looks at the intersection of crime and the family. I'm Kaylee, your host. And in case any of you wonder why my voice sounds funny, I've been battling a head cold for the past week. Yesterday, I pretty much lost my voice, so I am attempting to record this for you, but we'll see how far it gets. If I sound funny, I do apologize, but microbes do what microbes do. So let's hear some Julie London to set the mood, and I will see you on the other side. And take away the stars If we must live for the moment Love till the moment is through After the night and the music die Will I The previous episode delved a bit into some of the people of interest in the 1937 murder of Pamela Warner. There was Michael Misha Horjelski, Pamela's boyfriend from her grammar school in Tientsin, Han Shuching, the boy-slash-man whose nose was once broken by her father, Gilchrist Struthers, who lived in the same boarding house as Pamela did in Tientsin and was a recent love interest of hers and the mysterious John O'Brien, a man who was purportedly half Chinese, half Portuguese, and had become obsessed with Pamela, and actually had proposed to her while she was in Tientsin. Now, O'Brien has to be a nom de plume. Could Gilchrist be O'Brien? Gilchrist does not appear in French's book, yet O'Brien does, while O'Brien does not appear in Shepard's book, but Gilchrist does. Gilchrist stated nationality is Canadian, There is no real indication of his ancestry, but his name is definitely British Isles. Somehow, I don't see Pamela having a problem telling her father that she'd been proposed to by Chinese-Portuguese O'Brien as either a joke, knowing it would rile him up, or as a way to deflect his wrath away from Struthers. Werner had a very real way of charging off to injure men he thought were making any advances toward his daughter. Regardless, this line of inquiry did not go very far. In Paul French's book, Midnight in Peking, Misha was alibied out. O'Brien was written off because no one could find him. (sighs) And Han is looked at a bit harder by the police, even possibly considered a serious suspect, but written off by Edward Werner in his own investigation. In Graham Shepard's book, A Death in Peking, it is a similar alibi situation for Michael and Gilchrist. And Han is thought to be the perpetrator in conjunction with some other mysterious Chinese student? But wait, there's more. Police were also interested in one George Gorman. Gorman was born in Liverpool to an Irish family. He was a journalist and editor of the Peking Chronicle and Caravan magazine. Shepard uses several of Gorman's articles as sources in his book. If you remember, DCI Dennis and his men searched Pamela's room and came away with her diary. Both French and Shepard hint at Pamela's diary being fairly detailed. 
One entry tells of a picnic at which Gorman tried to make love to her, and she laughed at him in her entry at how silly he was. Note to all listening, sometime in the mid-last century, the phrase make love morphed it to mean have sex, just like the sayings Netflix and chill and hook up also used to have nothing to do with sex. For a very long time, saying a man was making love to a woman meant that he was flirting with or courting her. This being 1937, Pamela also means that he is flirting with her. Thus ends the lesson. Now Shepard says that Gorman was born in 1888, so he's about 59. French does not give his age, but he is in China with his wife and two adolescent children, so we could estimate his age as mid-40s at least in 1937. Either age suggests a man much older than Pamela, and either age makes his actions inappropriate at best. If it happened, that is. Not that Pamela is lying, but she also wouldn't have been the first teenager to embellish her life in her diary. Gorman and his family were in the society of the Leggett. Werner knew Gorman and his wife. Pamela knew the Gorman children. How much is unknown, but Gorman printed a story about Pamela's death in which he told of her coming to his house for tea with his wife the day before she is killed. The Gormans lived very close to the skating rink, and he said that Pamela had even left her bicycle at their house the night she was murdered. So, those are the basics for Gorman as a suspect. There is also a question mark hanging over the head of the headmaster of Tianjin Grammar School, Sidney Yeats. French gives an account of the police, D.I. Dennis and colleague, visiting the school to talk about Pamela and are met with members of the school board and their attorney, claiming that the headmaster was on probation because Werner had accused him of being inappropriate with Pamela Werner and had pulled her out of school. To avoid scandal, Yeats would stay until the beginning of the next school break and then he would claim he left for health reasons. Dennis is bewildered why no one told him in advance, just like he was bewildered why no one told him the Werners were planning on going back to England. Shepard says there is nothing to suggest that Yeats had anything to do with Pamela's death and that there is also nothing to suggest Warner's claim that Yeats had acted inappropriately was anything but a fantasy. For whatever it's worth, Yeats was rumored to drink and he did leave for England with his wife and daughter in March of 1937. In looking for Pamela's killer, the police are looking for blood. Remember, Pamela was mutilated. There should have been a lot of blood but there was very little blood where she was found, so the police are looking for the primary crime scene. The morning Pamela's body was found, there was also a rickshaw puller who was seen cleaning blood off a cushion from his rickshaw. He is brought in to see Colonel Hahn. The rickshaw man says that he picked up a foreigner who bled in his rickshaw. The man had gotten into a fight at a bar. Hahn knew the blood stain was too small to have come from Pamela's wounds. He let the rickshaw puller go. Han also sent some of his men over to the address where the rickshaw puller dropped his fare to interview that man. The fare ended up being a U.S. Marine who had had too much to drink, and his story checked out. It's hard to keep things quiet in a place like Peking. Everyone knew about the murder, and everyone was on the lookout for the killer. A local landlady happened to see her tenant with blood on his clothes and a knife, also with blood on it. The police brought the man into the station to question him. Colonel Hahn knew the man's name was Pinfold, and he had worked for a warlord as a bodyguard. Pinfold just sat in his chair, not speaking. A constable recognized Pinfold and let Colonel Hahn know. 
from Midnight in Peking, quote, The constable had been on duty a couple of days after Pamela's murder, protecting the crime scene at the foot of the Fox Tower. Among the curious locals who passed by was this man, Pinfold. The constable remembered him as only one of a few foreigners to linger by the scene. He had seemed quite agitated, scraping his feet on the ground as he stared at the spot where the body had lain, and was notably more down at heel than the average white man in Peking, end quote. Pinfold continues being silent as he is put in the cells. Han knows that Pinfold is rumored to hang around a bar-slash-brothel site in the Badlands. 27 and 28, Chuan Peng Huang. They rouse the bar and confirm that Pinfold is often there, running one hustle or another, but that is all they get. Pinfold is held until forensics clear him. The blood on his clothes and knife was most likely animal blood. The inquest into Pamela's murder is a bit interesting. It has begun, as far as I can gauge, on January 8th, the day following the discovery of her body. It is then paused to allow the pathologist to complete the autopsy and resumed on February 1st for that evidence. The inquest is then put on hold for almost five months. Why? Neither author gives a reason. It is resumed very late in June to determine that Pamela was killed by a person or persons unknown. Let me bring this back around to the atmosphere this is all happening in. In 1937, China is sort of being run by Chiang Kai-shek. I say sort of because the further into Asia you went, the less control Shek had. In fact, much of outer China was actually being ruled by warlords. Manchuria in the north had been taken over by the Japanese in 1931. There was also a very strong faction of communists trying to usurp Shek's power. The communists also claimed to want to unify China and centralize the power. Anyone heard of Chairman Mao? China was a very unstable place to be in the 1930s. Remember the description of Colonel Han waiting for Dennis at the train station in the last episode? Pamela was killed in January of 1937. In July, just over a week after the inquest was closed, a battle broke out in the greater district of Peking, beginning at the Marco Polo Bridge. If there was unrest leading up to the July 7th incident, there was full-on war afterwards. If you know anything about Japan's drive to take over, well, everything in the Asian continent and the Pacific, this was the beginning of World War II. Foreigners to China fled. Those that stayed pretty much ended up in concentration camps. The communists took this as their cue to defend China, the default being that they would control the country once the war was won against the Japanese. Pamela's former Tianjin Grammar School was taken over for Japanese ops, and the cemetery where Pamela and her mother were buried was leveled. All this is to convey that Pamela's murder is overshadowed by World War II. Among many locales in China, Peking is occupied by the Japanese and none of the paperwork or evidence survives. But Werner doesn't seem to realize this, or at least he is oblivious to why this would make a difference. Werner starts his own investigation into Pamela's murder two months after the Marco Polo Bridge incident. This is not so weird. Most people at the beginning of war don't often realize that what they are seeing is actually the beginning of a war. They have no clue how long the fighting will last or how extensive it will be. Werner was a fervent writer, especially letter writer, 
He's that guy in your neighborhood who is always trying to get people to sign a petition or putting flyers under your windshield wipers about some believed atrocity the city council should not be allowed to continue. In a previous episode, I said that Warner published his book, Autumn Leaves, in 1928, and in it he wrote about his wife. The wife who faded to nothing after marrying him and had been dead for five years. But he made no mention of his daughter, Pamela, in that book. His daughter, who was alive and being only 11, should have been on his mind as someone he held a responsibility to and should care for. Werner did not really acknowledge Pamela until she was dead. And then Werner takes the stance that the police are all bumbling fools and only he can solve the mystery. Werner does some investigating of his own, but he also pays for private detectives and CIs. Werner is ripe to accept scandal. The Chinese who gave him information were most likely trying to tell him what he wanted to hear so they could collect their payment and go about their lives. Because if Warner was convinced of something, he would not let it go, even if it was not true. For an atheist, the man saw leches and immorality everywhere. Warner ends up down a ludicrous rabbit hole, and I kind of think it's his own fault. To not melt your brain, dear listener, I am going to summarize his theory of the crime. Wait, I'm pretty sure even a summary will melt your brain. It really can't be avoided. Just please try not to implode. Here we go. When Pamela left the skating rink, a man approached her and asked her to go to a party. Either one Thomas Jack or Pinfold. The jury's still out on that. Pamela, wanting to be nice, went along because that makes sense. She has told the cook to prep her dinner and she's promised to be home by 7.30. She has cut her skating off and is actually heading towards home. When a random man steps out of the shadows and invites her to a party, Pamela says, Yes, man I do not know, or know well, depending upon which version of Warner's investigation you buy into. I will forego the direction I was headed in, and stub my father and the cook, who I have known since I was two, and go to your random party. Once at his home, she discovered the party was, actually, a hedonistic orgy she was expected to dance naked at, and she tried to leave. The man who invited her, along with another man, local American dentist Wentworth Prentice, rape her. After the rape, the men find that things have gone too far and she is either unconscious or dead. The men wave down a rickshaw. Enter that rickshaw puller with the bloody cushion. If she's dead, I'm not sure why you would take the chance of taking a rickshaw. But even more strange is why you would transport her in that rickshaw to the brothel at number 28, Chuan Pang Huang. You know, where Pinfold hangs out. Once at this brothel, the madam, Miss Oparina, tries to fix Pamela, but she's just too dead to fix. Oh, and they've told the rickshaw puller to wait, and the men then pile Pamela's body back into the rickshaw, at which time her blood gets on the infamous cushion, and they all go to the Badlands. Instead of availing themselves of the cover granted them by the two connected businesses they were actually inside of at 2728 Huan Pan Huang, the men take her to the open area of the Badlands and try to dissect her body to dispose of it. It is either too difficult of a job or someone comes along and scared them off, because that's what happens when you are trying to do something nefarious in the open air of a city. Either way, they scarper, leaving Pamela's body lying in the ditch to be found in the early morning. But wait, there's more background to this wackiness. The men who lure Pamela to the orgy party are actually debauched sexualists. Werner's word, not mine. 
who ran around naked in the woods and have naked dancing parties. Oh, and they all go hunting together. The leader of this nudist camp is the American dentist, but Gorman and Pinfold are also involved in this club. Werner actually has a list of whom he believes is involved in this mm, society. This includes the owners of number 27 and 28, Madame Operina and her son. In case you think this wild story has merit, let me just give you one of Werner's proofs. One of the tales he feeds on concerning Pamela's death is that the final blow which killed her came at the bar slash brothel location when someone hit her over the head with a chair leg. Werner decides he has to go investigate the location himself. He sees a chair that has a broken but repaired leg. Werner decides that this has to be the chair whose leg delivered the fatal blow to Pamela's head. A mended chair leg discovered two years after Pamela's murder. It's in a bar. A place that Pamela had probably never been in her life. It's like a pulp fiction story someone wrote taking Raymond Chandler's advice. When in doubt, have a man come through a door with a gun in his hand. And even Chandler admitted this was a bit silly. Werner continues to push this narrative all through the war and until his death in 1954. Pamela, now buried under Beijing's Ring Road, was forgotten until Paul French took an interest about 50 years later. So the question remains, who did kill Pamela? To talk about suspects, we need to reiterate that Pamela was mutilated. And she was mutilated in kind of a particular way. Granted, all I have to go on is the description. There are no crime scene or autopsy photos of the wounds. But this is the description. From Midnight in Peking, quote, After removing the skin from Pamela's chest and stomach, the killer had carved open her chest to expose her ribs. He had then broken all 12 of her ribs, six on either side. Each had been broken outwards. And then the killer had removed her heart, her bladder, her kidney, and her liver. To break a rib inward is not difficult. A blow to the side of the chest would achieve this. And people broke ribs all the time, when falling, fighting, or in accidents. But to snap something with the thickness and strength of a rib outwards against the natural curve. Not content with opening the ribcage, the mutilators had reached in and removed the organs. It seemed that Pamela had been killed by a madman. The autopsy continued. Cheng noted that two clean incisions had been made through the diaphragm below the lungs and at the abdomen. He believed these had been done either with a surgeon's scalpel or a professional amputation knife. They were not the hack job of an amateur. Pamela's stomach had also been cut away, at the esophagus, and the small intestine. It was inside her body but no longer attached to anything. The medical men now removed it for further examination. He concluded that she had had intercourse at some time in the recent past. She was not a virgin. But he was unable to say whether this was consensual or not, or whether it was pre- or post-mortem. The science just wasn't advanced enough. Pamela's vagina had also been mutilated, but again, Maxwell was unable to determine when this had taken place. End quote. So that is not dissection. That is not a frenzied knife attack. Pamela's wounds actually sound a lot like Ling Chi. More commonly known as death by a thousand cuts, Ling Chi is not really 1,000 cuts. It is more slow torture, usually with knives or swords, but not always. It does often involve the removal of organs, and in particular, the heart. The heart 
is often eaten. Look it up if you have a stout constitution. The photos are not pretty. It wasn't just a willy-nilly thing to use as a punishment, but it was used on both men and women, and usually for someone who had committed a grievous wrong. The wounds look a lot like those described for Pamela. One key thing of note, the pathologist thought that most of the cuts to her body were done post-mortem. If he is wrong about that and these wounds were done while she was alive, there seems to be a big case here for Ling Ji. If we can trust his analysis, the question needs to be asked, who would want to make her death look like Ling Ji, and if it is not Ling Ji, who would want to mutilate her body once she was dead? To get into viable lines of inquiry, let's start with Helen Foster Snow. I know her name kind of comes out of nowhere, but give me a minute. Helen Foster Snow was an American activist, journalist, and communist sympathizer. She was married to Edgar Snow and living in Peking at the time of the murder. Remember, there is a lot of unrest in China at the time of Pamela's murder. War is about to break out, even if no one knows that at the moment. Helen Snow was about 10 years older than Pamela, but she had the same body shape and height, wore similar clothes as Pamela did when Pamela wasn't in school, was a very independent woman, and would therefore go out on her own, like Pamela. At the time of the murder, Helen Snow actually brought the theory to DCI Dennis that someone had killed Pamela and mistaken her for Helen. Not four months later would Helen have to jump from a window to escape Yan An. Dennis thought that this mistake just might have been a possibility. I've seen the contemporary photos of the two women, and I also think it could be possible. It would take a particularly bad assassin to grab Pamela and not realize it was the wrong woman. All it would take to determine she was Pamela would be watching her for about 30 minutes beforehand to discover that she was in school and she was visiting her friends. But bad assassins do exist. It really does happen. Anyone who doesn't believe that is kidding themselves. And since the snows left town and the war started, no evidence was collected for or against this theory. There is not enough evidence for me to have an opinion either. But what makes me even put it on the map is the Lingji, or pseudo-Lingji as it were. If any woman were to get that treatment for a crime like sedition, it would be Helen. Cherry on top bit of intrigue is that the woman's face so Pamela's face, was impossible to recognize. She was identified by her hair and eye color and her watch. After she was dead, if the assassin wanted to possibly obscure the fact that he had gotten the wrong woman, yet still send a message, maybe to Helen, he would obliterate the face. That brings us to the next suspect, Edward Theodore Chalmers Werner. Look, the man is more nutty than a planter's factory. He married a woman something like 23 years younger than him, 24 to his 47, yet again if the dates are correct. On principle, I can't fault either one of them for the match. Coming out of the Victorian era, people still had some of the old-fashioned concepts of marriage. When women were married as early as 15 to men in their dotage, it was about financial security and the ability to propagate, not the morality of the age gap. But... It also made it easy for pedophiles and parthenophiles to thrive. Look it up, people. It's a thing. In Ray Warner, a case could be made that he was a parthenophile and a possessive one at that. If his inclination for much younger women is pathological, Pamela entering puberty would have put her squarely in his view as not only a potential mate, 
but as his potential mate. Thus the fits and anger over her suitors, his violence at their coming to the house, and thus Pamela's acting out and getting kicked out of every school she'd been in. Negatively acting out and having trouble in school can be the result of many things. However, it is one common red flag in child abuse. It fits this scenario, but it is in no way a slam dunk. Also, supporting this idea is her attitude change once she was at the grammar school. In theory, her problems at school stopped existing because she was finally two hours away from her father. So say this theory is correct. Pamela is planning to bring home her actual boyfriend, Misha. Far from being a homely bookish weakling, Misha is in his prime. The boy oozes masculinity. Misha coming to meet the father in this situation would be a huge threat to Warner. He is, or was, everything Warner was not. And he had Pamela. If Misha had actually arrived in Peking and tried to shake hands with Warner, I would have been in fear for his life. Instead, Pamela was dead. If Warner barred her from seeing Misha and, or he tried to force his advances, God, I sound like a Jane Austen novel, but if he did, I believe it is completely within his character to hit her over the head in anger and kill her with that damned cane most likely, perhaps more than once. The autopsy suggested that she was killed by a blow or blows to the head. God, I wish I had photos. And then there is the problem of getting rid of the body. Werner is a fantasist, but he's a smart one. A renowned sinologist. That means he knows a lot about China people keep up. And in order to divert attention from the head wounds, he gives her the wounds of Ling Chi and hopes the police will think the Chinese did it. Werner spends the night wandering the city looking for Pamela. Or is he just giving himself an alibi? Is he using the time he is searching to perform the mutilation? Where, do you ask? Don't know, but definitely not in the open, in the dark, in the cold ditch, in the badlands. Warner even leaves a note for Commissioner Thomas, adding credence to the notion that he had been out scouring the city. It's three in the morning. What bureaucrat would be at his desk at 3 a.m.? How could he possibly expect Thomas to be there? Wouldn't you go to the commissioner's house at that time of the night? If you were really that worried? When the body is found, Werner comes by at just the right moment to call out her name, Pamela, and say, look, that's her watch. It all seems a bit pat, and should have been checked out thoroughly, but it was not. I would also point out one more time that Werner never wrote about Pamela for the 18 years she was his child. After her death, she becomes his raison d'etre. He is not going to give this up, even if he is the killer. Jeffrey McDonald is still claiming Sodi. Again, people, the some other dude did it defense. Again, this is only a theory. I'm not sold on it. Neither should you be. But it fits the evidence better than a nudist sex ring tricking her into a party and then killing her with a chair leg. The chair leg, people. It has to be that chair leg. Okay, so next there is Han Shuqing, Pamela's Chinese friend who got his nose broken and supposedly DCI Dennis's and Graham Shepard's candidate for the murder. I don't have anything against him as a suspect, but no one has explained the mutilation. Why would he do that? I need a why. I also need a where, because Werner just might know a place where a body could be mutilated uninterrupted. He would certainly have the funds to purchase such a place, but a student? Not convinced of that. And where did her stuff go? No bike, no skates, no gloves, no handbag. 
watch still there. Very expensive watch, mind you. Next, and I know this is a bit of a stretch, but it should have been at least looked at. It's not Pamela. Hear me out. Pamela did not get along with her father. She had a mind of her own. Something happened that holiday. There are several photos of Pamela in both books. All but two are school shots. But those two studio photos are very different. Pamela looks stunning in all the glamour of 1930s Hollywood. So my question is, why do these photos exist? Why did she suddenly feel the need to have these very adult, very glamorous photos taken? Why spend the money on that dress? I have a hard time seeing Warner instigating this. So who? Let's say Warner did want to send her to England. I can't imagine Pamela loving that idea. China was her home. And it's a gruesome thought, but the body was identified by hair color, eye color, and the bits of clothing that were consistent with Pamela's clothing, including her distinctive watch. The body could have been mutilated to encourage an identification based on those things and on not seeing her face. Pamela, possibly with help, I mean, Gilchrist may have been in Peking, dumps the body and leaves what she needs to facilitate that ID. She leaves on her bicycle, which was never found, with her handbag, her gloves, coat, and beret, also never found. Where does she go? Who knows? Somewhere away from Warner. And okay, this is the last theory of the crime. In the true crime community, we all know there is always the possibility of random crazy people. Is this truly an isolated incident? There's no way to know. But it would be interesting to just see if there were any other deaths like Pamela's in China at that time, or in other ports of call. Because anyone who has followed the Golden State Killer or Israel Keys case knows that things that look localized sometimes aren't, and you just need to broaden your search to find the connection. So guys, that's all there is. No one really knows what happened to Pamela Warner, murdered just one week prior to her 20th birthday. If you like the show, please like, rate, and review. I'm putting a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Stop in, say hi. Fred Astaire will sing you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. The way you wear your hat The way you sip your tea The memory of all that Oh, no, they can't take that away from me The way your smile just beams The way you sing off key The way you haunt my dreams No, no, they can't take that away